The presenting sponsor of Top Docs is Netflix. From director Laura McGann, The Deepest Breath captures the gripping mix of destiny and danger at the heart of two athletes' undeniable bond. It offers a never-before-seen glimpse into one of the most dangerous sports on the planet. The Daily Beast calls the documentary heart-stopping, expansive, and intimate. Watch The Deepest Breath, now on Netflix. Welcome to Top Docs. I'm Mike Merrill. Today, I had the chance to speak with a filmmaker that I've hoped to have on since we first started this show, Errol Morris, to discuss his new documentary on Apple Plus, The Pigeon Tunnel. The film charts the life and career of David Cornwell, better known by his pen name, John Le Carre. At its core, much like the memoir that Cornwell wrote, with which the film shares a title, is the insight that his spy novels are maybe even more influenced by his childhood, his con man father and his missing mother, than the few years he spent in the intelligence game. Morris is maybe best known for his groundbreaking The Thin Blue Line of 1988, a film which made historical recreations seem less like gimmickry and more like a path to a deeper truth. The truths he digs out here are even deeper. Perhaps as relevant to this film is his 2003 The Fog of War, in which he interviewed at length Robert McNamara, sometimes called the architect of the Vietnam War, a film in which the issues of truth and falsity were ever-present. As you'll hear, I found Pigeon Tunnel not only a compelling, well-wrought film about a most interesting man, but to me it shared something with Lecrae's later work, like Silverview, a novel he wrote in his mid-80s, in which I would argue he not only throws into doubt the legacy of the British intelligence establishment, but casts a cold eye on his own literary methods. I read this film as, likewise, a culmination of a career. A deep look back on the filmic methods Morris has used throughout to try to get a grasp on the slipperiest of truths, legal, epistemological, and even ontological. Is there really anything of value in that final room, that furthest safe, that ultimate tunnel that haunts his work? If you like this conversation, please do subscribe to the pod and you can follow us on Twitter or Instagram at TopDocsPod. Now, my conversation with Errol Morris about his new documentary on Apple Plus, The Pigeon Tunnel. Errol Morris, welcome to Top Docs. Thank you for having me. Before we, you know, the plumb, the psychological and philosophical and ontological depths of this film, I wanted to ask you about interviewing David Cornwell as a subject. He died in 2020 at the age of 89. I assume when you were filming him, he was in his mid to late 80s. And I guess I shouldn't have been surprised because his later work, Agent Running in the Field, Silverview, while less epic than his earlier work, is still very attuned to human psychology, and it's just very spare and taut, but very well done. I was really struck by this man, how he does not seem diminished in terms of his analysis of the human condition or even his intellectual rigor. What were your impressions of him as you were speaking with him? Extraordinarily articulate, totally there. I know he died not so long after the making of this film, not so long after the interview, which is at the center of this film, but he was completely there. An extraordinary character, extraordinary writer, and an extraordinary talker. 
want to ask about the way you shoot him, especially early on. He's often off center. He's in half shadow. You shoot him sometimes from below. The background of the bookcase seems almost projected or at least refracted in some way. Can you talk about the mood you were trying to establish here early on? I don't know if it's thinking about it as establishing a mood. I like that library where we shot at Rufin, quite beautiful library. We used a lot of mirrors. Mirrors seem to me, to work metaphorically with the movie. There was a concern, certainly on my part, that the mirrors might not work. It might seem trying too hard, pretentious, whatever. But they do work, at least as far as I'm concerned. I think they're really quite beautiful in the library. And often you see the library at very odd angles. I don't know if it's going for some specific effect, but it's trying to throw things a little bit off kilter give things a slightly unexpected perspective. Hopefully that works. Yes, and I think we can talk more about mirroring as we move forward, because I think that is super important. It, it's interesting because towards the end, it seemed like the shots were literally lightened. You seemed to shoot him in front more in front of windows. He was kind of in a blue room, I think. He's often shot from higher above. Was that just kind of accidental to the moment, or were you changing the mood there, tone there? Well, the minute you move somebody to a different location, you're changing the mood quite dramatically. That was downstairs in the basement of that same building where we shot the library and shot some of the other scenes. But I liked it. I liked the fact that it was changed up. And often, I would say often, you don't know exactly what effect making these kinds of changes will have, but you know that it's going to do something of interest. It's going to change the mood change the perspective, change how the interview will be seen ultimately. And I like it. Yeah, I did too. We'd love to talk about the beginnings of films. And in this film, you began by talking about beginnings. And you say you want to start with a question that Cornwell Lacrae asked you about the nature of your relationship. You know, who are you? He's already turning the tables there. There are so many potential follow-ups here. I think we could just talk for 45 minutes about this. But I just want to get a sense of why you wanted to start there and what you thought this meant. I didn't want to start there. Well, I did start there because that was at the very beginning of my interview with him. But his questioning me, who are you? That's not something I asked him to do or not something that I traditionally would do myself. I would never ask a question, who are you? First of all, who in hell knows who they are? I certainly don't know who I am. I like the fact that from the very beginning, he is trying to determine what the nature of this interview, or if it even is an interview, what it's going to be. It made it really interesting. It made it somehow philosophical in nature. They were not just doing an interview per se, but were examining the nature of interviews, or what it means for one person to talk to another, or what is the difference, if there is one, between an interview and an interrogation? Are they one and the same? So... From the very beginning, he sets the storytelling on a philosophical, metaphorical plane. And I would have to thank him for that. You made it more interesting, David. Yeah, it certainly goes deep. Let's get there. But I also think in some ways he's talking about authorship, right? He's asking you, you know, who are you? Are you a friend, a stranger, a performance artist? And who's the audience? Is it a trade union? Is it elite? These are questions that an author would ask as they were thinking about writing. And in some ways, it's questions I'm sure you must ask yourself. I don't think I do. I don't 
ask myself, is this going to be for an elite organization, a, a trade union group? I don't do that. I try to make something that's going to interest me and try to do it to the best of my abilities. You know, when I think of kind of the quintessential Lacare character, George Smiley, you know, what do I think? I think of him doing a couple of things, digging deep into the archives, you know, finding these revelatory moments, and then making meaningful connections, and then interviewing people, you know, these conversations. They're always loaded. They're often two-sided. Both sides are trying to figure out what the other one knows or doesn't know. And it struck me that this is not wholly unlike documentary work. I agree. I have always seen... David Cornwell is a kind of thinly disguised documentarian because he's out there in the field talking to people, involved with the people, involved with history. You know, it's no accident that Spy who came in from the cold emerges from his experience of being in Bonn in 1960, 61. This is all based, steeped in history. And part of the story of the movie is this relationship between literature, history, and personal biography. Yep, it's all there. Over the past 20 years or so, a number of your films have featured kind of these interviews with prominent figures, Robert McNamara in The Fog of War, Donald Rumsfeld and The Unknown Known, which I watched with my kids this weekend when they really enjoyed it. And amongst other things, I think truth really seems to be at stake. We're constantly asking ourselves, are these people telling us the truth? Are they lying to us? Are they misremembering inconveniently? Are they lying to themselves? Here, though, you've really upped the ante in my mind because you're engaging with the unrepentant fabulist, someone who's not only a novelist, but someone who implicitly and explicitly says, even when they're writing about their own past, they're not sure if they're writing about what actually happened or what would they like to have had happen. Did you feel that, like that it was a change in, in the approach you had? I didn't feel it any more than I feel talking to anybody. People tell stories from some perspective, their own. The idea that somehow... A spy novelist is a different kind of creature from anybody else. Well, maybe in some sense he is. David has had a lot of time to think about the relationship between words and reality and to think about the relationship between his biography and his literary work. And that makes it interesting. But it doesn't mean that somehow we're dealing with a different kind of creature than ourselves. No. I don't believe that. We all lie. We all deceive ourselves. We all prevaricate in some way or another. That's what makes the world in a way of interest. I think it's worth it to take a moment to talk a bit about the title, The Pigeon Tunnel, which was the title of his memoir and apparently the working title of several of his earlier books. And The Pigeon Tunnel itself, you know, he remembers going on a trip with his Father Rodney, who was kind of a con man or was a con man, to Monte Carlo. And they were shooting pigeons. And the pigeons, they would eat the casino, they race down toward the light, they pop out, and then they're shot at by the hunters. Those who escape land on the roof of the casino and are returned to do it again and again and again. What did this mean to you when you heard that? It's at the very beginning, it's the frontispiece of his memoir, The Pigeon Tunnel. What I like about the Pigeon Tunnel and about these stories is they're like little parables. They're like Kafka. Kafka specialized in writing little, almost epigrammatic stories that were perverse, suggestive, but ultimately unclear in terms of their ultimate meaning. David has a similar gift of creating these parables. The Pigeon Tunnel is about so many things. 
It's Sisyphean. It's about some endless repetition that is only interrupted by death. It's about a world that is manipulated and controlled by others. There's so many elements in it that link to his fiction and to his spy stories. And I deliberately linked the two up when I linked the Pigeon Tunnel itself, that story, with the spy who came out of the cold. In which there are scenes of people being shot trying to get over the wall in Berlin. Yep. Well, there's scenes actually from the movie, The Spy Who Came Out of the Cold, and actual documentary footage from the beginnings of the Berlin Wall. Yes. And you use this image of the tunnel, as we said, of people being shot, of pigeon coops, of just the pigeons all throughout the film. And their ubiquity to me and presence were so profound that it almost was not like they were being edited in. It was almost like there was a current of them underneath all the time, and it would just pop up and rise up and appear and then subside. How, how did it feel to you? Was it an ever-present theme to you, too? It would have had to be, because I'm the one who put them in there. So true. Yes. Just a side note on this, you talked about the Sisyphean nature of that parable. It's also Nietzschean and Buddhist um, in so many ways. I do wonder, do you have a sense of the actual concrete reality of the tunnel? Do you think it actually existed? I believe it did exist. It no longer exists. That casino has been torn down years ago, but that's okay. It's a story, a parable, and evoking it and recreating it is part of my job as a filmmaker. I think probably the central theme of the film and Cornwell's memoir is that in terms of understanding who he is as a writer of spy thrillers and really as a person, it's less about the few years he spent as a less than perfect spy and much more a consequence of his youthful family life, his con man, Father Rodney, to some extent, his missing mother. Uh, there's so many things to talk about here and you really explore it throughout. But it really, the, the sense that life was a stage and that pretense was everything, that risk was attractive, but overall, the most important thing was the imprint of personality. The, the, the effect of Rodney on his life was enormous. Yeah, I, again, find it so interesting that he weaved together personal biography, his experiences with history, traveling really across the world. I often compare him, for example, to Conrad. Conrad journeyed hmm. really around the world and produced these extraordinary works of fiction from many of his journeys, whether it was Heart of Darkness out of the Congo or Nostromo out of South America. He was a guy who turned history and personal biography into some of the world's great literature. And David is of a similar ilk. The other thing that really came out for me in terms of that early lessons was that he thought at some level, the purpose of life was to show off and tell stories. And then there was no center to human beings. And this becomes a psychological truth for him. And also in the story of the room or even the green safe that holds the secrets, it's empty too. And you notice this is about statecraft. It's about the provisionality of history, but it's also this deep kind of existential, as you mentioned, or ontological problem of what actually is there at the core, truth, which I think is so important to your work in general. Well, you have this discussion about truth, which I very much liked, where he declares his belief in objective truths. There is such a thing as objective truth. Maybe we can never lay our hands on it. Maybe we can never know it, but it's there somewhere. Wherever that somewhere might be, it's there. Is it God? Who knows? It's a hidden truth. 
And we all know that we may never be able to lay our hands on it, but we pursue it. It's a quest. It's an attempt to find things out, to understand the world. And in the end, maybe we understand nothing. That's the sad truth. The parable of the, the safe and Rudolf Hess's trousers, which is yeah. at the very end of the film, is an absurdist story. Here, we're trying to crack one of the greatest mysteries of the 20th century. Why did Rudolf Hess, second-racking Nazi in the Third Reich, why did he commandeer a plane and fly to Scotland, presumably to make a separate peace with the British government? And in the end, it it devolves into absurdity. Maybe we can't know. Maybe the answer is absurd. Maybe we as human beings get sidetracked into nonsense rather than really pursue a story to some conclusion. Again, it's a parable with a thousand meanings, and that's one of his great gifts as an artist. Cornwell would go on to Oxford, and he learned to take on the attitudes and manners of a class to which he did not belong turned himself into one of them, but he never felt like one of them. And midway through your film, you really dig into Kim Philby, who was a very upper crust British spy, but who was actually working for the Soviet Union, Stalin's Soviet Union, Cornwell emphasizes. And Philby, Cornwell says, was at war with himself. He resented the privilege into which he was born. In some ways, it, he seems sort of like you're bringing this up because of the historical importance of Philby, but also he's a very dark mirror image of Cornwell himself. Yes and no. It's interesting. It's one of the things that I certainly discovered about David in the course of the making of the movie. He's a patriot, and he's a believer, not just in objective truth, but in right and wrong. There's an underlying ethics, an underlying morality. When asked how he felt about betraying his fellow students who were members of the Communist Party at Oxford, he tells us he does not feel badly about it. Yeah. Because they were on the wrong side of history. They had sworn loyalty to Joseph Stalin. Stalin was evil. And then the decision, their decision to do that was wrong. And his decision to turn them in was right. Same story in slightly different garb. He tells about a visit to the Soviet Union. He's invited to a literary conference. And... The organizer of the conference says, you know, would you like to meet Kim Philby? Kim Philby by this time had defected to the Soviet Union. Would you like to meet Kim Philby? And David says, no, I'm not interested in meeting him. I'm not going to have dinner with the Queen's representative one night and with the Queen's trader on the following night. I'm not going to do that. And it's a very powerful example of the man who has a compass, a moral compass, if you like, that there are things you do and there are things you don't do. There is right, there is wrong, there is good, there is evil. And he chooses in his own lights to say on the side of good rather than the side of evil. And he manages that, I think, in an interesting way, which he said he could have turned out to be a bad guy like Philby or, or by implication like Rodney, but I found a home for my larceny, which I assume is his writing. Indeed, the assumption is correct. That is his home. He says he never submitted, as he puts it, to therapy or analysis. And he claims with a little smile, if I knew secrets about myself, it would deprive my writing. 
Look, this is a stunning thing for someone who has so clearly plumbed his own childhood to say for clues of who he is. It seems like he has administered self-therapy in some sense. Certainly, he has gone through an extensive examination of his own biography, of his own self, of his own history. Absolutely. He was his own psychoanalyst, very much so. And an immensely complex character. Would I ever claim to completely understand the man? Of course not. But I was delighted by the opportunity to talk with him about some things that interested me. The fabulous opportunity. And yes, he has thought about his own family history. Ronnie, his mother, Olive. It's all a really interesting story. And I had a limited amount of time. I had only an hour and a half to tell a very large story with a very, very large canvas. And I just hope to God I've done it justice. Oh, I would say you did. You know, it's intriguing similarly to me that despite his willingness to discuss his father's foibles, to use a euphemistic term, he seems very unwilling to discuss his own personal life. He was married twice, had four children, several well-attested affairs. His sons have spoken to these realities. But in your film, he pretty much dismisses the question. My love life has been a very difficult passage, but it's resolved itself wonderfully. And that's enough on the subject. It's interesting he won't, he doesn't explore what effect this sense of chaos from his father affects his own fatherhood. I think it's interesting that he won't volunteer information about it. It was not at the heart of my reasons for interviewing him. When you do an interview, at least when I do an interview, it has a meandering quality. It was informed by the Pigeon Tunnel. I wish I had had more time. Originally, I had conceived this as a series, five-part series, and then act. It was decided that it should be a single movie. And, you know, it's a struggle to figure out how to put things together. But I'm not Masters and Johnson. I was not making a movie about David's sex life, nor did I really want to. I don't think it's a terrible, unfortunate, unpardonable omission on my part. It's a choice to focus on some things rather than other things. Do I think it's of interest? that his father serially betrayed his family and that David himself may have done the same. Of course, it's of interest. But there are many, many things of interest, and I hope I've covered at least some of them. I thought the recreations here are really profound, uh, fascinating. We already talked about the theme of the pigeons. When I think back about your use of recreations, Often they were used in a way which was surprising that you showed they weren't just for illustrative purposes, but they were a way of getting at the truth in the thin blue line, for example. Here we see recreations of purported facts, but also things we know didn't happen or probably didn't. For example, Cornwell visiting his father in prison or outside prison. How do you think about the use of recreations in this film? Well, I think that David so often tells us that many of his stories are false. In a way, that is the content of the story, that it may not be true. Seeing his father and waving to his father uh, in prison is the perfect example of that. He says that he had been subsequently informed that wherever his father was in prison, it couldn't be seen from outside. It couldn't be seen from the road. So the story itself, by his own admission in the film, has to be apocryphal. That is of interest. Why not interview a lot of people about David Cornwell and make a movie with 30 people telling you various stories about their experiences with David? Because it's not about that. 
it's about how he sees himself, how he views his own experience, how he views the experience of going to visit his father as a monopoly man. Yeah. Even though it may not be true, it's true as a story for him, and he makes that clear in the version of the story he tells. There's endless ironies. If you like mirrors, stories reflected against each other, questioned, examined, rejected, and it's part of the nature of the movie itself. Just a little sidebar here. One of the things that really struck me was when he recounts his conversation with the British intelligence head, Nicholas Elliott, about the treatment of Kim Philby, the seeming unwillingness of the British elite to punish their own. And he's really, he he does both sides and he shoots both ways, you flip it. So he's, it's like he's talking to himself. I was really struck that despite the fact that, you know, they share some of the same kind of plummy posh pronunciations, he's able to really capture this kind of dithering, whether real or feigned from Elliot. He, he really is a quite impressive actor, I thought. Without any question. A person who has almost a musical gift, not almost, a truly musical gift for language who hears language, who hears the inflections of language, the accents of language, the idiosyncrasies of language, and is a master storyteller. The stuff with Eliot and himself is great because he's playing these disparate roles all by himself. It's good. You know, earlier I asked about uh, a hidden gem documentary. I wonder, maybe I'll ask a slightly different question, but do you have a hidden gem of Le Carre's work? A book maybe doesn't get the attention that the others should, but you found interesting? There's so much of Le Carre. I mean, I thought I should read all of it, but that's impossible. There's yeah. just 30 plus novels. If you were impolite, you'd call him a graphomaniac, a guy who just could not really stop writing and produced this virtual tsunami of words. I very much like Tinker Taylor, still like it, Spy. Small Town in Germany, I mm. think, it's unfortunately overlooked. It's terrific. Single is another work that I like. He produced a lot of stuff, and a lot of his nonfiction is great. The uh, Pigeon Tunnel being a perfect example. I, If anything, if this movie brings that memoir, The Pigeon Tunnel, to a wider audience, that's a good thing in and of itself. Yeah, I'm thinking about Silverview because it really is a book that looks back at his own legacy in some way. It seems to be in some ways looking back and asking questions about what he's done and what he's written. And to my mind, in many ways, this film is an incredible career summation and yet kind of an inversion. You're going back and you're asking questions about the nature of interrogation, the nature of asking questions. Yep. <laughs> I think uh, it still interests me. I'm still not sure I could tell you the difference between an interview and an interrogation. I know there has to be one. There has to be a lot of differences. But it's a really essential and majestic question, and I'm glad that I had the opportunity to hear him ask them. I'll come out and say it. I think this is a masterpiece, this movie. Um, oh, thank you. I love the atmosphere of Thin Blue Line. I, I reveled in the intellectual adventuresome of Fast Sheep and Out of Control. I marveled at the revelations of the fog of war. And I think this film really builds upon that legacy. And yet somehow you cast it all in this state of productive ontological doubt. That just makes me think and think and think. So thank you, Errol, for this today. Well, thank you. It's a very kind thing to say. Thank you so much. And thank you for this film. It's really a wonderful film. 
Thank you. And I'll, I, I will reread La Carrea in a very different light now, for sure. Okay.